And we're back. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a Monday. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston after a beautiful weekend in May following a week of cold rain. It's nice to finally see spring. How are Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, Senate President Matt Huffman, and House Speaker Jason Stevens clashing over the idea of helping out people with affordable housing? Lisa, we thought affordable housing was going to be part of the budget, but Darth Vader has reared his head. Yeah, Governor Mike DeWine has proposed a, a couple of different, you know, things, tax credits for developers who would build new homes for low-income renters and owners, and that would be a 10-year tax credit. And these would also be coupled with federal low-income housing tax credits. So, you know, it sounds like a win-win. And so $100 million of what DeWine is proposing would be those credits over 10 years in addition to the federal money, and then $50 million specifically for affordable single-family housing. Now, the House turned down that $50 million piece, but they increased the overall investment to $500 million. The Senate has no proposal yet. They say, Senate President Matt Huffman says, they're really more focused on keeping people in their own homes. He said it would be less expensive for taxpayers and better for the person, but they haven't offered any cost estimates for that at all. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that Matt Huffman would not like this idea. He really isn't much about helping people in need. Uh, What he's trying to provide would be much more middle class. DeWine seems like he's trying to make sure people have shelters. So I don't I guess it's not a surprise that Matt Huffman would try and stop this. I wonder what happens in the negotiations as they get to the final budget, though. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because DeWine seems fairly committed to affordable housing. Uh, The Ohio for Enterprise Community Partners, which builds affordable units, the director, Hazel Remish, says, yeah, keeping people in their homes is important, but it's not going to solve the affordable housing crisis by itself. She said you need policies to build new and preserve old at the same time. I remember how overjoyed those housing advocates were when DeWine's budget came out and they thought, wow, for once they're going to try to do something. We've talked about this need for a long time, and right now it is very much in danger. It shows that the Republican leaders, even though they own the state house, don't always agree on everything. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We highly suspected there was a real story behind the abrupt exit of Ohio's lottery director, even though the governor's office originally told us there was no there there. Layla, it was either the guy did something bad or it was a political move. It sounds like it's the former. What are the details? Pat McDonald resigned April 12th and he cited some unspecified medical reasons. But now we know that he was actually under investigation for accusations that he would frequently send suggestive text messages or touch people inappropriately or express inappropriate fondness in the workplace, especially toward two employees. He also offered these employees flexibility with their work hours that others did not have, although it doesn't seem that the employees in question took advantage of that. The record suggests that they worked the required number of hours. When when McDonald was confronted, he denied these accusations, but then said he had been thinking of resigning anyway for health reasons. So he did that the following day, and they dropped the investigation against him. But in text messages 
the text messages are very damning. The Ohio Lottery Commission provided these in response to a public rec- records request. He 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 sent numerous late night text messages to one particular employee, and in them he repeatedly told this employee, "I love you," and said that he wishes the employee were his son. In one, he said, I I drive you crazy, but you will never have a boss nor dude that cares and loves you so much. And in another one, he wrote, you are the most amazing and fun, intellectual and hot dude I ever met. Uh, So, yeah, that's uh, pretty pretty bad. (laughs) You know, the troubling thing about this is when he resigned, we immediately had tips that he was walked out of the building, that that this Mm. was not. A, a friendly retirement. It was very abrupt. And and when we called the governor's office, I said, yeah, we're hearing the same thing, but th- there's nothing to that. There's nothing to that. Instead of just saying, hey, look, there's an investigation behind this. It's it's still in the investigation stage. We're not ready to release it yet. When we, when we are, we will. So it's disappointing that they were misleading and nobody believed them anyway. What the other troubling thing is, it says that because he resigned or retired or whatever, that yeah. they stopped their investigation. Now, I would think right? that given that this sounds like a very hostile workplace for these folks, you'd want to complete that investigation to make sure you have the proper policies in place so that it doesn't happen again. Or if it happens again, it's more easily reported. What's to say that the next director won't do the same thing? Yep. Yeah, that's those are excellent points. Um, and 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 also to, I guess, make sure that no laws were broken here, that there's no criminal liability. And um and and you know, who knows if this if this particular employee could choose to bring a lawsuit. They they don't wanna they, they shouldn't just wash their hands of this so quickly, sweep it under the rug. And this is one of those cases too where you're playing with people's livelihoods. So th- these workers get, you know, this guy gets these messages from his boss. And uncomfortable, but if you push back too hard, do you lose your job? Do you lose whatever makes it work? And so they're trying to navigate this to try and and get through it. And eventually it gets so overwhelming that it gets reported. But it's a horrible situation and they should really look into what's going on in the Lottery Commission Mm -hmm. offices Mm -hmm. to make sure this kind of thing isn't happening regularly. I mean, it's just the, the text messages are over the top. What you just read, can you imagine getting those from your boss? Can you imagine me sending messages like that? I hope the answer is no. I really hope the answer is no. <laughs> it's just not appropriate. You can't do that. Right. You're putting people into a very difficult situation and it, it's out of control. They, they should it, complete this investigation and come out with whatever policy changes they need. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Canada handle childcare in a way that should make American parents extremely envious, Laura? There is a Canadian plan to provide public childcare for $10 Canadian a day that's in the works. And this is coming from Quebec, actually. Until very recently, until the pandemic, childcare, at least in Ontario, where my cousins live, didn't seem very different than here. It was hard to get into. It was expensive. But during the pandemic, they took this opportunity to switch to a model that Quebec has used successfully for 25 years. I really had no idea till Gretchen Coudacrone started doing the research. It seems brilliant. There's this public system of childcare that basically pays for itself. And it's based on the increase of women in the workforce earning money and paying income taxes that pays for 
for this childcare that costs the families about $8 Canadian a day, which is about $6 US. The finance minister, who of course is a woman, pushed this through uh, when everybody during the pandemic just realized how important childcare is. So they divvied up about $30 billion Canadian in initial funding amongst the provinces. No province said, hey, no, we don't want this. And their goal is to create 250,000 childcare spaces by March of 2026. Right now they're in a transition. So they're doing rebates up to 50% uh, this year, paying the parents back. So about $7 American is what it's going to cost to take your your kid to childcare all day in Canada, starting in a couple of years. I did get some emails from some people who lean to the right, I guess I should describe them, who thought this was more socialism than smart policy, that they just don't agree that the taxpayers should have to foot that bill. I mean, at one point in the story, it said that this would cost nothing, but it it will cost a lot of tax dollars. Well, but their point is that, yes, it's publicly funded, but the public, like, revenue coming from it is greater because of it, that they increased their women working um, from the 60 something percent to 80 something. So they have one of the highest women work rates in the world, I believe, for paid income. And that is paying for the system. So yeah, obviously you're paying something, but it's being, those coffers are being continually replenished by what it's achieved. And I mean, yes, Canada is way more socialistic than the United States. They have universal health care. But we do have programs in this country that you could be describing as socialism. I mean, it's not like we are 100% capitalism. And if you can't make a dollar, then we're going to fall off the edge of the earth. No, I, and look, I'm not saying I agree that this is socialism. It actually seems like a smart policy to help parents raise the, the children in the ever-increasing costs, as you well know. It's fascinating. This is happening just to the north of us, and we have nothing really similar to it here. Imagine if your child care had that kind of price tag. I I think people would have more kids, really. I do, because it would, and you're publicly available, so you know you're going to have a slot. You're not competing for that. And the thing is, Quebec actually had a private childcare system as well, and that's kind of gone out of business because the public system works so well. And Gretchen did a whole lot of research for this story. I was. I was floored reading it, honestly. The, a 2020 study by the Economic Policy Institute found that the U.S. spends 0.2% of its GDP on kids before they reach kindergarten. That's less than one-third of the world average. And so we talk, in Can- or we talk in the United States about how much we value family and how much we value children, but we're not putting our money where our mouth is. And she gets into the politics. She wants to delve into this a little bit more. But, you know, when you try to give even federal money to states to say, you can expand childcare. I mean, places like Idaho send it back and they say, we don't want this here. We don't want women working. And, you know, um, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance tweeted that universal daycare is class war against normal people. So this isn't just like what's best for families and what's best for our economy. This is a very political, ideological fight. Everything today is a very political, ideological fight. You can't pick an issue. Interesting stuff. You should really read the story. It's eye-opener, even for our Canadian native on this podcast. Exactly. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibbs plan to speed up lakefront development have some traction now? Lisa, what just happened that makes it so... 
On Friday, the City Planning Commission approved Bibb's plan to spend $21 million in ARPA money on establishing a waterfront activation fund. So this would be money that would help expedite nine projects that are in various stages of planning and development. And this will also leverage an additional $195 million from government agencies, foundations, and corporations. Um, The city's integrated development chief, Jeff Epstein, says this is will be a catalytic catalytic thrust. He says the money will provide tangible early stage improvements that we can actually see happening in the next few years. So the projects that are they're focusing on and the one that's getting the most is Irish Town Bend. That's getting five million to stabilize that that bend and put a park there. Also three million for the North Coast Connector, which is now what we're calling that bridge that would go, you know, over to the North Coast Harbor. So it's not the Haslam plan or the ribbon plan anymore. Um, Cheers, that's where they're going to use dredge material to build uh, 75 acres of parkland. And they're getting $1.5 million for a fishing pier, which is part of that project. The Euclid Beach Trail Connector, this is, it's a $16 million project. Not sure how much money is going towards this. But this will be a half mile lakefront trail from a Euclid Creek Reservation across three different subdivisions or neighborhoods. And the neighbors, the, the owners have agreed to allow a trail easement in exchange for erosion control. So, um, yeah, and a lot like a lot of these, Destination Cleveland, the lighting, we talked about that last week. The Bedrock Riverfront Infrastructure, they want $3 million to jumpstart improvements from Tower City to Collision Bend. So lots of projects, and like I said, they, they have things that they can do now, things that they can plan for later, and that's what this money will help do. There's so much substance coming out of the city's use of this money. It's such a stark contrast to how the county did it. These are these are good projects, and you got to salute them for moving it now. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Spreading affordable broadband access throughout Cleveland was one of the very first purposes mentioned in 2021 for the hundreds of millions of federal pandemic stimulus dollars sent to Cleveland. Well, you'll remember there was absolutely no plan for it because we were in a mayor's race with the previous administration and the council president said, I'm going to do it with no concrete. Finally, on Friday, came some news of actual broadband projects 18 months later. What are they? Yes, they're finally putting this plan together to bring affordable internet to the masses in a city where 35% of of residents lack broadband service at their home. This is going to be introduced to city council tonight. It's a proposal to create two citywide internet services. One option would provide an $18 a month broadband plan through local nonprofit Digital C. They use fixed wireless technology to to offer high-speed connectivity. The second option would come through a proposed agreement with sci-fi networks, which would build fiber optic lines across the city. The digital C connectivity will happen pretty quickly within about 18 months of of this deal's approval, but the fiber installation is going to take longer. It's going to be about two years, and then construction would take about five. But the beauty about the fiber plan is that the Sci-Fi Network's proposal doesn't involve any public money. This company already has agreements with more than 40 cities across 11 states, and they've agreed to privately invest more than $400 million to build out the fiber network in Cleveland. And once built, Sci-Fi would operate the lines and then sell wholesale access to those lines to internet service providers that already serve 
Cleveland residents. The Digital Sea Agreement is going to tap into that $20 million in American Rescue Plan Act money that you were talking about that City Council and, and Frank Jackson set aside in 2021. But they're going to need a lot more than that to connect the whole city. So Digital Sea is going to tap into its own financial reserves and then the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Foundation and the David and Inez Myers Foundation are going to match the city's money with a $20 million investment of their own. So a very nice collaboration of philanthropy, public money, and private investment. I don't get what took so long, though. I mean, this was put on the table in whatever it was, September of, of 21. And Digital C was mentioned and the foundation was mentioned. And I, I hope it's not a sign of how long this will take to install the delay it took to come to this agreement. You just hope Digital C does have the resources to get this done in short order, right? Yeah. I mean, it, there are a lot of parts to this plan, so I can see why it probably took a while. I mean, you've got you had to get sci-fi networks to pony up their own in, you know money for investment here 20 million wasn't enough i mean so so all this philanthropy had to come together i think i think I mean, obviously they were being very thoughtful in how they put this together the the sci-fi part of it won't be guaranteed at a low price the, it's the digital c that would give people the right, broadband right. for 18 dollars a month sci-fi sounds like it might be in market but right now in most of cleveland they do not have fiber so they cannot fiber. get the speeds that people get in the suburbs right right is, that's the real difference maker here is is that fiber connectivity throughout the city okay you're listening to today in ohio what do we know about the former Marine from Cleveland Heights who was killed in the war in Ukraine, Laura? Well, he sounds like a wonderful person, Cooper Andrews. He was 26. And his family, sorry, his family says his compassion for others led him to help the people of Ukraine. He was struck by a mortar outside Bakhmut on what's called the Road of Life, which is an access artery in the eastern Ukraine city, and it's used to evacuate civilians and resupply the Ukrainian military. He was actually supposed to return home in March. He decided to stay in Ukraine and continue to help. And then his family members say it's actually his unit was told to retreat, but he and others stayed behind and wanted to evacuate civilians. So in every choice he has, he is, is he was selfless and, and didn't do what could have saved him. So he was an Eagle Scout, a volunteer firefighter. He went out and extinguished wildfires in Texas, Colorado, and Idaho. And in his spare time, which, I mean, it does not sound like this young man had much spare time, he helped teach self-defense classes to women, fixed kitchen appliances, fed neighborhood kids, collected feminine feminine hygiene products to donate to women who needed them. So just an incredible person. And when, when the war started in Ukraine, he just felt like he had a duty to go help out. Yeah. He did. I don't, <clears throat> sorry. I don't think he had any kind of relationship to people who lived in Ukraine. He just thought it was the right thing to do. He'd already served in, in the Marines. He came home and this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to go help people. So um, he cared about all sorts of, of, organizations, mutual aid, disaster relief, rise own home, food, not bombs. That's what his uh, family is actually raising money for through a GoFundMe in his honor. They want to raise money for the causes he believed in and help continue the good work that he did for so much of his short life. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked last week about the giant number of dollars needed by the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority to get its rail lines into decent shape. 
They got good news about a piece of the number Friday, Lisa. What is it? Yeah, there was a big announcement at RTA's um, Central Rail Facility on Friday. Senator Sherrod Brown was there and other officials. So they were there to announce an award of $130 million from the Biden's Infrastructure Bill Rail Car Replacement Program. So this will allow RTA to order its first batch of 24 cars for the heavy rail red line, which goes downtown Hopkins and Windermere. So Cleveland got the third highest grant in the nation. Uh, Federal Transit Administration Director Nuria Fernandez at the Friday announcement said that um, this will help RTA leverage other money with uh, local commitments to chip away at ex- the extensive repair backlog. And Sherrod Brown says Cleveland is a city on the move. So he was excited to announce it. But RTA has $400 million in unfunded projects. That includes a $30 million shortfall for the blue and green lines because they need to reconstruct those rails to fit the new cars because green and blue are light rail and red line is heavy rail, but they're going to be buying all heavy rail cars and they're going to need a total of $50 million for rail car transformation overall. There's no money coming from either the city or Cuyahoga County. Mayor Justin Bibb says he will lobby for the RTA needs at the highest levels of government and uh, executive Chris Ronane for the county. He says He's going to provide final mile transit solutions like bike lanes, shuttles, van pools, and walkways. So no cash, but but help. Yeah, they, they believe in it. They really do. They really do. <laughs> I, I, I do think it's marvelous that they got that chunk of money. When we first started talking, it must be 10 years ago now, about this looming need to replace rail cars, there was no money. They, they weren't mm-hmm. getting anywhere. So, yes, they have a long way to go. But to get solid, large chunks like that, I mean, third biggest in the country, as you said, that's a good sign. I, uh, I, I don't know where the rest of it will come from. Maybe, you know, we avoid building a football stadium and they would have some <laughs> capital money there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter John Tucker wrote an illuminating story, as John Tucker always seems to do. This one about how illegal drugs have been getting into the Cuyahoga County Jail. Layla, who's bringing them in? Oh, the story was so good, and it sheds light on such a serious problem in jails across America. And in recent years, our jail has seen a considerable uptick in drug seizures. So John detailed the investigation of Sheriff's Deputy Scott Vargo, who got a tip from a prosecutor about drug smuggling that was happening at the facility, organized by one inmate named Eric Ball. Vargo started listening to Ball's recorded jailhouse phone conversations and reading all of his unopened mail, and he discovered this whole drug smuggling enterprise that prosecutors say involved a corrections officer named Lauren Ellis Nelson, who had been working there for nine months by the time they discovered what was happening. And according to the investigative report, Ellis Nelson had calls with 21 detainees, and Vargo's report says that Ellis Nelson participated in 1,257 calls with nine inmates who, who had been caught with drugs. And one of the key ways of smuggling drugs into the facility, it seems, is on paper laced with PCP or other drugs that can be chewed or dissolved on the tongue. Drugs would also get smuggled in under skin folds, like under a breast, for example, which apparently can thwart the jail's drug screening technology that every everyone has to pass through as they enter the facility. And especially if a person conducting the screening isn't trained to spot those hidden narcotics. 
as Vargo listened to these jail calls last summer, he flagged a bunch of key phrases and drug references that were really interesting. Boy, water, and tune, for example, mean heroin, PCP, and drug-laced paper. So four sheets of tune could get Ball $1,000 on the jail market. And in one conversation, Ball suggested that paper soaked with roach spray could get people high. His girlfriend was the one on the outside procuring these products and funneling them to the drug mule. And Lauren Ellis Nelson admitted to smuggling the drugs for three inmates when she was confronted, and she faces seven felony charges. But eventually, Fargo unearthed drug trafficking evidence that went beyond Ball. There were a dozen detainees and correction officers who've now been indicted on a bunch of crimes. I, I let, let's start with the roach spray. So paper, <laughs> I, 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 we haven't had, I don't think, an overdose death on roach spray yet. But that is dangerous. I mean, if you think about that, that that's not stuff that's made for human consumption. Uh, I I don't know what you do if you're the jail. If this, if drugs are coming in on paper, how do you stop it? They did have a program where they've given the inmates. Uh, iPad style tablets. And so when the mail comes in now, they're scanning the mail and sending them the digital image and they never get their paper mail. But that doesn't deal with the guards. I mean, if the guards are the ones bringing in the drugs, you know, you're not going to strip search guards as they come in every day. They're going to be able to get past it. How do you deal with that? I know. I mean, this this seems like a completely unmanageable problem. There was one source who told uh, who told John that this is the thing that is in the back of the minds of all sheriffs across America. It's so hard to get your arms around. How do you solve this? Because you're right. If it's if it's the guards themselves, <laughs> those are the people you're supposed to trust to to keep a hand on uh, on the population, the inmate population. And and here they are exacerbating this problem. I mean, there's also the question of, you know, should should they be providing b- better drug treatment? options for for inmates if they're so desperate to uh to to get high in jail that they're sucking on paper soaked in roach spray well, for heaven's sake I, I there's another answer you know you could change the definition of medical marijuana to include the condition of being in the jail and then turn the jails into dispensaries and then you'd know at least they're getting safe drugs <laughs> they're paying for it. They're paying top dollar for roach spray so that it wouldn't cost the taxpayer anything. If if you can't stop them, then maybe the thing to do is to make it safer, right? Because we've had people die of drug overdoses in the jail. Not clear whether it's based on drugs they got in the jail or before or what. But th- th- there's what this story said to me is resistance is futile. You're not going to stop the drugs from coming in. So maybe you should take a different tack. Well, what is it? I mean, that marijuana is not the same as heroin or PCP. Those are the drugs that these inmates are seeking here. No, no. But the story did say that one one of the people she was dealing with, or somebody sent her a picture of a big stash of weed and said, can you get this in? And she goes, well, I'd have to strap that inside my leg. So apparently marijuana is getting Mm. in. I don't know. I just, you're not, if you have guards that want to do this, you're not going to stop it because there's no inspection that's going to keep it safe. Great stuff. John Tucker is just a tremendous reporter, does a great job putting these things together. Check out his story. It is on cleveland.com and it's today in Ohio.
TurboTax is a program people use to pay their taxes or, more importantly, to get refunds paid back to them. But now TurboTax itself is going to be paying money to a whole lot of people in Ohio. Laura, why is that? Because it tricked Americans from all 50 states into paying for its supposedly free income tax filing. So they had a free tax filing via the IRS free file program that allows members of the military and taxpayers that earn less than $34,000 a year to file their income taxes for free with TurboTax. However, they took these very tricky steps to steer customers away uh, from the actual free edition and then to a quote-unquote free edition that has stricter eligibility requirements and led some users to pay more than $200. So the way it did that is it blocked the free file landing page from search engine results in 2018 and never displayed or recommended that program on its products and pricing page. So people didn't even know it existed. And I mean, it's calling itself the free edition rather than the free file. So people just thought it was. And then when you get all of the work done to file and then it tells you you owe money, I guess people just paid because they were like, oh my gosh, I thought I understood this. I've done all this work. I just I'm just going to pay this. So Dave Yost, our attorney general from Ohio, sued the company. Is there any penalty or do they just have to pay back the filing money? Because it seems like there should be a really serious punishment here. They did bad. They knew they did bad. What is the penalty for doing bad? If you just have to pay back what you already owed people... And it's not even quite what you owed. The average Ohioan paid $52 to file this, and the refund check is about $30. So I don't know. They they did stop participating in the free file program, so it should be very clear. Like You can't do it anymore through TurboTax, but you're right. They, they should be publicly shamed or you know not allowed to do business for some amount of time because that's really taking advantage yeah. of people. And in and the, the, the if you free file, you're already you know it's fraud. You're not they committed rich. fraud. And there fraud. should be treble yeah. damages. Somebody should be looking at the potential of jail time. You committed fraud on untold numbers of people, and you're getting away with it. You don't even have to pay it all back. It's not a good settlement if you don't have to pay a penalty. What's to stop you from doing it again? Oh, if we get caught, we'll have to pay something. Oh well. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.